I suppose I need to say welcome to uh, Waterculture, which Ooh. is our very, very occasional show. It's been just um, over a year since the last one. I was going to say we did one this year, haven't we? No, we haven't. Well, I mean, it could even be regular, but it's not necessarily frequent. <laughs> yes. Um, so, joined from, direct from Watson Hall, um, I'm John with Roger, Nick and Shim, and Hello. we're going to talk about... Uh, game books, and as always with water culture, it's not anything that involves us knowing what we're talking about or doing research or providing a useful service for people listening. It's more our own experience and whatever guff we can actually remember. So, to start with, a uh, bit of a definition because I mean, you say solo RPG to somebody, that means to some people one GM and one player, and to anybody with, who's sane, it means just one person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you've just to get some slight definition, a typical game book I'm thinking is uh, mass market, paperback, you take the role of either a particular character or the unnamed you, mm. and when you get to sort of decision points in the narrative, there might be a... Um, uh, a mechanical thing, rolling some dice or choosing a random number, and you might have uh, a split of paragraphs. You've got a choice. You get to the intersection, do you turn left, go to paragraph 82, do you turn right, go to paragraph 399. That kind of thing. So, these started not that long ago, honestly. Um, pretty much 1979. But they've got historical roots going back as far as uh, at least 1930 but apparently there were some experimental things before that but there were plays there were novels all with sort of different endings people were experimenting with as a form but they were more sort of artistic than gamey, I suppose. Yeah. Um... Well, I mean, the, ga- the game context didn't exist. The, the, the earliest one I, I could find is a romantic novel. Consider the consequences. Um, which mostly a dozen or more different endings, apparently. I, I've not read it, but um, that that is a very certain sort of romantic novel, isn't it? Consider the consequences. But, but, but I, I am told at least that one of the, one of the earliest choices you make is which of which of three characters you're going to play, the heroine or either possible hero. So right. You may end up with the romantic outcome, no matter what your initial stamina score. <laughs> so Ayn Rand wrote a. a an interactive fiction thing. Yep. Uh, Borgia wrote one. I can't remember if it was... There was a play. There, was, there were all sorts of things. So it was an idea that was going around for a bit, and then it resurfaced particularly in the idea of um, instructional uh, manuals, which is obviously a bit dry and isn't a game. doesn't involve any game mechanics, but um, was dealt with by people like mechanics. It's sort of, you know, we've got this problem with uh, with an engine. Mm. What do you do? Do you do this, this, or this? And you go and you turn to it, and it's like, no, you idiot, you've just killed 400 people in a crash. Uh, <laughs> go back, pick the right one. And, and a per- very limited simulation. Well, in a way. But the person who invented this uh, mm. rother brilliantly was everybody's favourite pigeon botherer, uh, B.F. Skinner. Who's worth looking? If you look up Skinner's pigeons, it's w- worth it in its own right. Is that skin of the Skinner box? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, getting animals to tap things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the man who I, I think it was him who came with the idea of the pigeon-guided missile. 
Genius. Um, yes, the pigeons themselves would probably not have liked it because it involved a pigeon in the nose cone of a warhead. Didn't they have to tap tapping to, at yeah, things that kept right. that then moved it in? Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't think there's any provision for the pigeon to survive. I, so, I don't think they were very reliable. And it, even no, this was all practical from the bat bomb. <laughs> uh, true. True. I mean, if if you were inside a warhead and supposed to direct it for the benefit of your yeah, exactly. masters of a different species, I would be I would be deeply unreliable. Well, I'm Pre- not sure the situation them... was was fully explained to them. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> they gave them the pamphlets explaining just how much corn they'd get after a successful <laughs> yeah. mission. So I, anyway. I was just thinking, wait, John, wait. as as you were explaining about the you know these training manuals, I was that actually doesn't feel too different from the health and safety training online you know no the things that we're doing at the moment it's it you can see the connection immediately you can and you can certainly see the connection to what we're looking at which is more the game side of it because basically the man who invented um the game not the game book but the solo adventure the program solo adventure that you pick a paragraph and do that uh was in fact uh, a guy who repaired airplanes for boeing and uh, he had a, a, a mate called Ken Sinandre, and they were chatting away. This was a fellow called uh, Steve McAllister. They were chatting at a science fiction convention with uh, Rick Loomis, who was the publisher of uh, Flying, who owned Flying Buffalo, who was the publisher of Tunnels and Trolls. And this was about 75, possibly early 76. And he came up with this idea of, look, we've got these manuals that sort of do this thing. Why, why don't we do that as a game so that you can play it on your own rather than having to have a group there. You know, it would be cool. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, they all thought it was cool, but the person who did something about it was Rick Loomis, who toddled off for the weekend and wrote Buffalo Castle. And that came out in 76. And that's the first sort of um, gamebook-type adventure that actually had proper game mechanics. It's not generally considered the first gamebook, because it got beaten to the punch uh, by... um, the Adventures of You on Sugarcane Island, I think it was. Mm. Right? Choose your own adventure. It, it, sort of. It, it wasn't originally. It, it was an adventure of you. Yeah, yeah a, pr- right. a precursor to that, which, which had been written, or so the author said, at least in '69, but it couldn't get a publisher. Mm. Rejected quite a lot, actually. Yeah. So, so what? I mean, what was that using? Because it obviously wasn't nothing. A, a That's game. the thing. It's it not a got a game. It's not a game it? component. It's a choice component. <clears throat> Ah, I see. Yeah. So it didn't have a kind of catchy um, you know, choose your own adventure. It didn't have that. It was the adventures of you. Mm. And that, when it finally got accepted, um, it was published by a, uh, a relatively small press, but a huge success by their standards. And actually, um, I, th- I can't remember if it was like six or eight thousand of these things were sold. And it was a hardback. You know, it was a very much a 1970s hardback. Um, so that's a great success, and if it was out today as a role-playing product, that would be considered terrific by most <laughs> publishers, um, many of whom count their sales in dozens, if they're lucky. But back then, it, you know, it, you couldn't really um, make a national impact with those sorts of numbers. And it was another three years, it, I think another couple of books came out with a different publisher, that it was another three years before finally it was with Bantam. And... Because the previous two books have been called Choose Your Own Adventure um, in Space, or something like right. that, the fact that Bantam actually had marketing people meant that somebody had the brilliant idea of calling the whole series, and importantly, trademarking the 
phrase, <laughs> choose your own adventure. So suddenly you've got a brand. You've not just got this one weird book. And so in America, 1979, Choose Your Own Adventure comes out. And obviously it's much bigger than Tunnels and Trolls, which is still a, a very niche product and really always remained. So you've got that kind of parallel um, evolution of these things coming out and also in, in computers because you're looking at mid-70s for things like Advent, Stroke Adventure, adventure Stroke yeah, Colossal, Colossal Cave, Cave Adventure. Yeah. And, the, and in the, you know, the sort of birth of interactive fiction, they... There, there's evidence of one that I think was out much, much earlier, but it wasn't widespread. So, But again, this idea has been kicking around for ages. And then all this really kicks off in uh, 1981, I think, at a Games Day. Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston are having a chat with... Uh, who was it? Gerald? Geraldine Cook. Cook. Uh, the, yeah. uh, Ga- editor Ga- of Penguin. Ga- Games Day 1980, I believe. Oh, 1980, was yeah. it? Right. Here are, very, by various accounts, 1,000 or 5,000 people playing D&D. <laughs> we want a book about this, because clearly there are a bunch of people who are going to buy it. And, now, yeah. at this point, they were the sole uh, European exporters of D&D, weren't they? I importers. Think. Importers, I should say. Yeah. yeah, I think at that stage they might have been printing the the Games Workshop version of the um, the Holmes Basic set. So right. I think they they because that always catches Americans out when they'll see this really weird John Blanche cover for a basic set of D and D. Like, what oh the hell God. was that? Uh, John Blanche, ne- never a man to let TSR's corporate lines stop him. You know? <laughs> so the idea was that they would write a sort of how-to book, because obviously lots of people are playing this newfangled Dungeons & Dragons thing, and because of that, they went off and didn't do that at all, and they wrote a game book called The Magic Quest. And I can honestly say that I don't think we'd have we'd be here at the moment if it was called The Magic Quest on publication. <laughs> <laughs> they went through some rewrites, it went through Penguin's Well, I think the original puffing. book was half how to play D&D, and then they include an example adventure. And then they decide well, either. Oh, is that right? Either, okay. Originally, it was a here's how you play D and D, and they included this kind of sample adventure just as a part of it. I I think it was at the suggestion of is it Geraldine? Geraldine Cook. Yeah, I think it was at her suggestion that they expanded that into the whole book and did. Oh, that makes them sound D&D. much less rebellious. Okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> I mean, Ian Livingston still had his tash at that stage, so um, he, he wasn't looking like one. That's my memory of the situation. Right, right. So there you are, you're 1982. You've really got the first proper game book come out in the UK. It's fighting fantasy. Again, it's not just they've got a brand for the the whole line, even though there's only one come out, but they, they expect more to come out. It's, um, it's also got a slightly punchier uh, kind of tagline for it as well. It's not just choose your own adventure, it's... You are the hero. You in capitals, I recall. It's you not a proper the game book unless it's got a capital Y-O-U, are the hero. <laughs> but that's that's the thing. To me, this is kind of where I came in and it came into my life. I read a, a newspaper article about it. It hadn't even been published. It was coming out the following month, I think, or following week. I read about this thing. I'd never played D&D. I may have heard of it. I don't even know. But 1982, I went out to WH Smith's. Uh, got one off the shelf as soon as they were there, 
And that was it. They've cost me fucking thousands of pounds ever since then. <laughs> Buggers were completely caught up and captivated by the hobby. So for me, because I wasn't even into tunnels and trolls or anything at this stage, it was fighting fantasy that got me in. So, Nick, you still have uh, considerable... I mean, I used to have a shelf load of all the titles. Well, I've got some of yours You've still now. got quite I've, a lot. You have indeed got some I've wide. become a bit of a collector what about you? Them, I suppose. For me, uh, my mum was a head teacher, and she wasn't allowed particularly to experiment on the, <laughs> the children in the school. Um, but she was always on the lookout for new books um, to get them to read. And she had this pushy rep come and try and sell her the fighting fantasy books. She was a bit dubious, so she thought she'd test them out on me. <laughs> Just um, in case they turned out to be indoctrinating in, or in dangerous. In case it was a terrible uh, Satan worshipping thing, then you know. Well, you could always want. do always do a version control rollback on you, after all. Well, exactly. Yeah, she had a spare for me. Um, so uh, our, she brought the Forest of Doom home. Um, oh, okay. So was fantastic. that the following year? Was that eighty three or well, that the first one come out was in the third one? So there was Citadel yeah. of Chaos in between. With the uh, I, again for me, Fighting Fantasy, a, a big part of it was the illustrations, and Forest of Doom's got that incredible Ian McKay cover of this kind of sun dappled shape. The shape changer, isn't it? Yeah, um, and it's just the the cover accidentally uh, absolutely blew me away. I had that cover made into a jigsaw later on, <laughs> um, not not the actual cover. I, I the cover of Citadel. Dollar Chaos uh, didn't blow many people away, shit, and though. was that by Emmanuel? Uh, yeah, the first edition, and then they got Ian Miller it, to redo it for the second. Okay. It, it was very carty. I've got the original um, one, but that was a really hard flipping game. Was anyway, yes, Forest of Doom did it for me, and I adored it. And then just um, uh, they never really took off at my mum's school, actually. But I, it, mm. it got me into the hobby. From there, I. I uh, I ended up with the Fighting Fantasy, the book they did that was like the role-playing game, and ran yep, that. Yeah, so that was about times. eighty-four. That one wasn't it? Ran the Riddling Reaver, and then we got into D and D sort of off the back of that. So, in a way, relatively sim- similar to me. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, uh, that was my introduction to the hobby. Yeah. Uh, Shem, now I don't think you'd had the same sort of experience with game books when they came out, um, or later on, particularly. I mean, the boom time only lasted about six or seven years, mm-hmm. and after a decade, they were incredibly hard to find. Many of them, I think, Finding Fantasy was shut down in '95. You can now, but they've like, come back. They've come, well, back. They come back yeah. like four or five times with different publishers. Anyway, sorry, Sid. Yeah. yeah. So, and, I mean, what, what's the situation with you then? Um, what, what have so, you encountered them? Yeah, I mean, as I recall, I first ran into them in the local library, um, not in any kind of you know, it wasn't, there was no systematic anything, but, you know, there were odd, uh, copies here and there of, uh, oh, what was the, I, at some point, definitely the Forest of Doom, um, the, the one with the Lich, I can't remember which one, which one that is, it's one of the early well, ones. Well, Keeper the Lich Lord, there's Caverns of the Snow Witch, there's, uh, de- uh the City Island of Thieves, you have King? to destroy Zambar uh, Bone That's at the number end. five, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah. No, it's, it's the one where specifically you are being sent out to try and recruit a magic spear to destroy the... Crypts of the Sorcerer, that's like 20, mm, 19 or no. 20, Okay. And then it may be... So it was mainly fighting fantasy still. It wasn't um, yeah, it was... wolf or... No, um, I, th- I would say for me it was a mix. I don't know exactly about the timing. I think fighting fantasy slightly pitched at the post. Um, and 
sort of round about the same time from going to lots of school fairs and jumble sales and stuff, I was ending up with uh, quite a lot of old annuals of various kinds, which often had mm, yeah, choose your own adventures in. So that was kind of tying in, but obviously that was choose your own adventure. That was not game books. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of, um, you know, I think helped to reinforce that interest in that type of thing. So were you already a, a role-playing gamer at this stage? Did you no. have exposure to that? No. no, I mean, I'd have been about, I don't know, eight or nine or something. It is allowed. Yeah, um, and I didn't start... So, I mean, very, very briefly, I I started Warhammer when I was, like, 13. I didn't actually... Uh, got, I got into CRPGs when I was university. You know, you Icewind Dale and uh, that kind of stuff. Mm. I didn't actually play an actual role-playing game until I was about 25. I'm leaving. So uh, It's probably unrelated. Yeah. It's likely <laughs> to be either his bladder or his beer calling. <laughs> One end or the other. Um, yes. Uh, looks like beer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so so for me, it was very, very much earlier than any, um, you know, anything like that. But it didn't so that... influence you later on, do you think? Or... Um, well, it doesn't sound like it made you immediately want to seek out more of them at the um, time. I mean, I I did, but th- I think the thing is, you know, I I would pick them up when I saw them in the library or secondhand, you know, charity shops and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it it wasn't really something that seemed to be a particularly systematic way to look for. Um, we weren't exactly buying a lot of books and things anyway, so I, w- I would very much just kind of pick them up as and when I saw them. Obviously, this was before you could conveniently find second-hand copies of things online for pennies and mm-hmm. buy them. Yeah, so it was a, it they're was not a pennies now, because everybody in the 50s suddenly wants them uh, <laughs> back again. Yeah, um, but... So it was a kind of a, a you know, for, for, you know, a long time afterwards, I would pick one up if I saw it and play them. But I never really got through that many. And a lot of it was library copies, which I play and then send, you know, mm. give back. I hadn't really thought about them being in libraries. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't in a systematic way. You, you were not going to get, you know, numbers one to 25 of anything. And it was only fighting fantasy as far as I know, but mm. there were, you know, odds and sods around the place. But I, I, I think the intended consumption model is, is not that you're going to go back again and again to it. It, you know, you, you play the thing through, then you've played it, and then, you know, you might come back to it several years later, as with the book. But... I, I'm not sure that's true, because a lot of them, they had reputations for being very hard, and people had yeah, to fair. play and play and play them until they beat, and again, I don't know if anyone actually did, because it's, it's not actually that much fun to read the same thing again and again and again. But quite a few were mm. um, aimed for, for replayability. I mean, Scorpion yes. Swamp was one that did that, mm. that. Yes. It, it, it sort of ended up being a trade-off that you you could move around in a slightly different way. It wasn't quite so linear. Yeah. But on the other hand, while that gave you a lot of sort of replayability and far more options, it lost a little bit in the flavour because yeah. one of the great things about the game book was that you were you were getting kind of chunks of a novel. It was bits yeah. of a story. And obviously, if you reduce that slightly and go back to more of the sort of early tunnels and trolls model. Um, you're fitting quite a, quite a lot of stuff in, but 
you don't tend to get the the very flavorful text. Well, I think that does become a genuine sort of divide in some of the later, well, in the early times. There is a difference between, like, this, I guess, the scenario in a book, which is basically this very specific, at least partially linear. There may be three or four different paths through, but usually there's only one true path, particularly if it's a fucking Ian Livingston one. <laughs> um, uh, Burn too much? <laughs> he just, so his idea of making a game harder was just if you didn't do a random thing 30 paragraphs before you were just going to die in the late and that was how his game how his game books were hard and he got this reputation for doing these difficult ones which i think he was proud of but they weren't actually that much fun to play because you you'd have to play them again and do the exact the exact one path but i suppose that there's a difference between that and then the kind of world in a book things like the tunnels and trolls one and like much later fabled lands was trying to do which was a series of well, it, only six came out, a seventh one recently. It was supposed to be 12 books spanning this entire world that you could walk about freely through. Mm. And and even that suffered from a similar problem in that it was... Oh, it's really good, um, uh, but it, it doesn't quite have the flavour of the original novel-like ones. Also, you, you start to run into the two problems, one of which is if you try and make it too flexible, mm. then you start to notice the constraints that are there more and more, you know, things yeah. like, but why can't I go back to the previous room mm. or, Oh, I yes. can go back to the previous room or I can turn left. So why can't I go back to the, trace mm. back my route to such and this yes. kind of thing, but also because, um, and you notice this with ones where they've got things like the mazes or t- tangles of twisty passages or like, yeah, um, one of those where, fire top, isn't it? it beco- oh, yeah, it becomes very fire top mounted exactly. Over to the other. Um, you know, it because you have to have repeating sections or sections that people might come to from a multitude of different previous paragraphs, mm-hmm. and that means the current paragraph therefore has to be quite bland. Yeah. A bit generic. It can be a bit. The whole yeah. point of that maze was basically to bottleneck the player back into the middle, so that mm. then they could start again. Because the other problem you come across is, of course, the combinatorial explosion. In that, if it's too, if it's too free, these books only had. I mean, the fighting fantasies all had. Not all of them, actually, but uh, almost all of them had 400 paragraphs. They, they were capped at that. Also, of course, yeah. a very strict page count, because publishing. Yeah. But, well, they... Yeah, uh, uh, but j- just before we go too far sorry. far off, because uh, I wanted to touch on some of the, the things that Shin was saying, particularly about um, that kind of the wider world going back on yourself and that sort of thing. Um, what about Roger, then? I suspect your introduction to RPGs wasn't quite the same. As yeah, I do think. seem to be the old man out here, because I, I had what, at the time, was this, much the same introduction of most of the people I knew about then, which was um, somebody had got hold of... This is about 81, maybe early 82. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Somebody at school had got had brought, brought a... Uh, copy of of this weird weird D and D thing from from the US. Uh, quite quite a lot of them had, you know, American step parents or relatives or something of that sort. And mm, so this didn't happen a lot in Stoke. I never saw a copy <laughs> at my school. Yeah, the, the, I, it was quite it was quite a weird school, but uh, that that was in other respects as well. Uh, I, won't, <laughs> I won't name it here. Uh, but yeah, so I had already become aware of actual basic D&D and this is about the time the um Holmes basic not the Chris, not the um John Blanche cover one but the actual US import 
started to become available in you know, places like John Lewis. Right. Um, John Menzies. Oh, well, in the provinces, I suppose. Uh, and so when Warlock happened, I was already a role player. Okay. Uh, I already so that. naturally you were looking down on this. This oh, it was compulsory. Right. <laughs> well, uh, so was that the attitude then? What, oh, why yes. Why you need this book when we're all? Well, that was the attitude towards basic D and D when AD and D came out. Oh, you know, okay. if you said, "Oh, well, actually, I prefer basic D and D," oh, well, that's a kids' game. Yeah, it, it was very much, oh, well, yeah, it's good enough for the kids. But uh, at the same time, uh, I did enjoy them. I did play them. I, d- I didn't, yeah, when, when they brought it out as a standalone system, which we may come back to, I wasn't particularly impressed because I already had standalone systems that I knew. And it was very, very simple. Uh, yeah. I'm but not, we will talk about that again. As a solo thing, yeah, good fun. Um, but, some... but it was, it was not my introduction to the hobby the way it clearly no. was for you guys. So. Well, so really, it was very... just something you bumped into. It was a, another I, game on the shelf, really. I'm, I'm not sure whether I was reading White Dwarf by then or that came soon afterwards, but I was starting to be aware that this wasn't just a static lump of things on the shelf. There were new products coming out and that I heard about mm. this and decided to give it a try. Mm. Right. And then it becomes just sort of one of those games in the rotation or that you move on from. Well, I mean, it, it wasn't a thing I would do, um, what would you say, in a role-playing context? Because, you know, mm. I, I wouldn't be getting together with other people to play it, but if I was not getting together with other people, I might well. It's right. a di- different sort of activity. I, I think I played the first 25, 30, thereabouts. I, I had a collection. I sold most of them. I mean, the actual fighting fantasy, I think they went to 26 in the first run, did they? No, they went up to... Uh, f- uh... 40, 59. I think, in the original, yeah, there was Did a lot they? of them. I, I stopped getting, okay. they, they slow, I stopped they buying s- them at 6, 26, I, I can remember say, that. One of my, they they um, slowed down a lot in the later years, to be one fair. One of my memories of, of childhood is my understanding of inflation or how prices got bigger is from fighting fancy books <laughs> because <laughs> I remember getting them for like, uh, one ninety nine, I think originally, and one pound twenty five. Warlock was. I've still got oh, mine. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the one that. I kept. There we go. And I remember saving up because like, back when it next... didn't have a green spine. Because they were coming mm. out. Yeah, I've got the color. I think they went up to seven with the colored spines. Maybe. Oh no, this is before it had a colored spine. The first edition is a wraparound picture. Oh yes, yeah, I've got I that one too. Yeah, the spine yeah, got... is is not a different color. That's then right, it went yeah. to a particularly I've... unpleasant. Sort of <laughs> kind of turned brown, brown. Yeah. Uh, and it was up to Lizard King they did that and then they did uh, that real rebranding the... with the particularly 1980s green, green. because they it did... stood out on a shelf it, I must say it did stand out on the shelf so they must have done some I mean, you've got uh, to remember market research apart from um, Jackson and Livingston who'd got all the sort of connections through um, Games Workshop which is one of the reasons why you got all those amazing rather familiar name artists when you look at them at the time. Yes, yeah. Um I think they kept uh, approval of the art as well. Yeah, they but they had they had that, to fight over that because Penguin were basically saying we're going to be selling this to kids. We want, yeah. you know, safe covers. Well, that's yes. what they've done yeah. now. I, again, we we can talk about modern fighting fantasy, but a big appeal for me was the art. It was so. It was. Uh, it also had a real kind of again, no surprise, but a real kind of Warhammer grittiness, British fantasy feel to it. The fighting fantasy ones. Um, but the ones the other... that stood out to you were Ian McKay, who were. 
Uh, Ian McKay did the number of the best covers, like Death Trap Dungeon, he did the, the Blood Beast cover for that. John Blanche as well, he did the Sorcery, um, with, um, amazing. Um, Alan but the, but the actual sort of Russ trade Nicholson. dress of it that they went on with the green banner and, and the whole oh, yeah. badge and the, the real marketing, I mean, that's going to be well, Penguin Puffin, isn't it? Because, you know, the other, they're the marketing people. The hmm. other books that stood out on the shelves, that, that Choose Your Own Adventure all had that quite distinctive white... Did you uh, see any of them? Because they were pretty I rare. I did because my mum had a lot in her school, and they were right. more popular in the school than the fighting fancy. For me, I I just I, they were nothing compared to fighting. So I what frustrated me about the Choose Your Own Adventure was one the lack of game, and two they were not persistent worlds, and that frustrated me. So the Choose no. Your Own Adventure games, the the story would change. The actual world would change depending on what choices you made so you you'd end up in a horror story in one or a science fiction or a different world um whereas in the fighting fantasy and that i don't know why that mattered to me except that it did and still does whereas the fighting fantasy was a persistent world that you were just doing moving through and uh, eventually of course became a a a really quite extensive world setting of titan which Mm. they, they published out as a book and there's only i think it's probably only half a dozen or so of the actual fighting fantasy that t- are kind of outside it, aren't they? Because Starship Traveller yes. was the first non-fantasy one. Was it this was I... the point where you started to notice that Ian Livingstone yes. tended to do the more <laughs> um, kind of involved narrative yeah. fantasy stuff. Whereas uh, it was like Steve Jackson went, no, I've done fantasy, right, what am I going to do this time? Uh, right, uh, science of... fiction. Then he did House of Hell. Uh, I was going to say House of one. Hell, obviously. He did Appointment with F-E-A-R, Appointment with Fear, which was his... Was uh, that Jackson? I thought that was... That was, St- that was Steve Jackson. All the ones were a bit outre oh, with Steve that. Jackson. Right. Um, with a fantastic Brian Bolland cover, who I already yes. knew from Judge Dredd. Um, he did Creature of Havoc, which is renowned as the hardest fighting fantasy. I've never managed to finish it. And it, it's hard in an interesting and fun way. It's full of those little things like... If you have a bit of secret knowledge, then take 50 off the reference that you're at and go to that yeah. reference instead. Uh, that was a really... I, I loved that sort of thing, which his sorcery series... He did the sorcery series as well, mm. which is the, the series of four linked books. Uh, they I, that, that, they are my favourite game books, I think, of all time, the sorcery ones. They're amazing. Um, you had to memorise the spell book before you left. Um, not that I ever did, but it, it was full of really nice little... All, all the innovative ones to me were Steve Jackson. All the... Uh, sorry, Ian Livingstone, because I, I really like his narrative style and his writing, but they were frustrating books to play. And he, <laughs> he unfortunately, was much more prolific. Uh, I don't know if Steve Jackson has written one recently at all, but Ian Livingstone's certainly done a, a good few... He didn't Port of Peril is the last one I think, which was only a few years ago. Mm. And he might have done another one since then. Yeah, certainly look, looking at the list, um, I'm seeing a lot of, gosh, yes, here's more fantasy, here's more fantasy. Uh, oh, Ian Livingston did Freeway Fighter, to be fair. Did. Oh, did he do Freeway Fighter? Uh, yeah, I suppose it feels a bit more linear. That's a, yeah, a kinky Mad Max knockoff. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... It's interesting because obviously was that, was that fourteen, t- Roger? Uh, thirteen. Oh, so close. Yeah. See, I, I used, used to know them all, yeah, everything. But then my brain eventually went, you know, you're never going to need this information <laughs> again, John. So yes, yes, but I don't need to remember who the cinematographer for a particular film, blah blah blah, and I knew all of them. But I've managed to get that out of my head as well now. 
you've got a, a push, I think. I, I could never tell if it was trying to push the market share or if it was the authors just thinking, you know, actually, I don't want to just keep writing the same thing over and over again. So let's do a spell book and, um, and a, an ongoing series of... So Sorcery... Yes, which I think was published by Penguin. Now well, that's, it was, that's it was the adult. As, it was sold as a, this is an adult version of fighting. Yeah. I mean, frankly, it it is, a, but it, it's much more complex. But the but originally that, you've got a, you've got a slipcase, haven't you? You've got the first volume, which would be the first of four that makes yeah. up the complete adventure, and it's a continuous thing. Um, and it came with the spell book, which I think had three letter combinations that yeah, yeah, you're supposed to remember. Mm. So it was more involved, and it was. It was doing something where it's trying to introduce magic rather than just if you've got a magic item, you can use it here. Yes. And that was also happening um, years before, but still. Uh, with Tunnels and Trolls, <laughs> they, they went through that same sort of thing. Your first game, uh, Buffalo Castle, is a dungeon. The most innovative thing about it, apart from the fact that it exists at all, um, is something that didn't really crop up afterwards. It's got a feature where... If you if you bump into something and think that's going to murder me, I haven't got a hope. You can try to make a saving roll to leg it for the exit, and basically you you miss the rest of the dungeon. You just charge and you leave, and you're out and you're alive, but you've actually survived. So I thought that was an interesting thing. But they they went on to things like City of Adventure that it actually had the feeling of a city that was sort of mm. operating just slightly independently of you. You had wandering personalities, and you were supposed to make... Uh, you noted them down on index cards, so when you arrived at a certain place, you might bump into a wandering personality, and of course you might have met them before, and the notes that you'd made on the card to update the situation, you know, he'd sold you this, the pickpocket had stolen something, whatever, would then change the way that it was operating. And that was in yeah, 78. That's really so that was relatively young. early. Yeah. And then you went on to the first... Uh, that I know of, Adventure for Wizards, because obviously magic spells, trying to use lots of different magic spells as options, as opposed to using your sword, that's much more complicated. Oh, thank you, I say. Um, <clears throat> sorry, my tea has arrived. Um, it's, it's far more complicated. Now, you, the, the traditional way of dealing with that it would be an exponentially bigger and bigger book and it, it, it's unwieldy you couldn't do it and it's a huge waste of effort for the author so initially they came up with several options I think on the first page and if you were at a point where you use the magic you turned to that and you'd got one of several options but then they came up with a magic matrix which I think came into the games in about 81 it was either the rewrite of Dargon's Dungeon that Mike Stackpole and somebody else did. I'm terribly sorry, I've forgotten who. Um, or it was... What was the other one that came out in 81? Uh, sea of Mystery. Um, Glenn Rahman, I think it was. Uh, which is another of those where you can move around and backtrack and go to different places. You go to different ports and you're sailing around. But that has got the magic matrix. Now, I've sent you a bit of homework and I sent you all a picture of this. So... If you're at home, you can go out and buy a PDF of um, <laughs> one of the later adventures, which has a magic matrix. But for the rest of us, essentially, it is a, a sort of a grid with the paragraphs where you're able to use magic. And then that's cross-referenced with uh, a, a selection of the spells that you can use. And there's about a dozen, I think, something like that. 
and you cross-reference, and that gives you what your choice of spell gives you the effect that it has at that particular paragraph. So, on the one hand, it can't have a lot written into the paragraph about it, but it's given you a tactical choice that you didn't previously have with magic. So that was the big innovation. Ah. And there are a number of things like that. Multiple well, characters, It's example. also hiding things a bit, isn't it? Because presumably what you do is pick your spell and then look up the matrix. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it, it's the sort of thing where, you know, if you're playing that wizard, you would have to think, oh, take that, you fiend, and then go and see what happened. And, of course, you might be fighting something that um, is in some way resistant or it's actually a phantasm, it's not really there, something like that. So, so the way um, the way sorcery dealt with that um, was innovative too. In that, as I said, you had to memorize the the spell, but you had to memorize all these three letter combinations. Mm. And in a fight, it would give you a list of like, right, these are the five spells you can cast. Pick one and turn to that number. Several of them would just not be spells, and if you pick them, it cost you stamina, but yep. nothing happened. And several of them have spell components that you have to collect. In fact, one of the big parts of sorcery is, oh my god, there's a green haired wig. I can cast Yaz now. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> but you have to remember. Oh, the memories, yeah. Which, which, um, you had to remember which component was which, and if you tried to cast it, and you didn't have the component, you lost stamina too. So that was... I, I always enjoyed that um, side mm. of it. Uh, you're saying about a consistent world, um, probably the one that really did it was Lone Wolf, mm. which series of novels um, was an existing D&D world, I think, for Joe Diva, and he did he certainly did miniature battles and things in it. Now, Joe Diva, well, I, I've always wondered what the story is, and never tracked it down anywhere, and never heard, what the story is between the splits with him, because he was uh, one of the Games Workshop employees, quite an early one, hmm. um, and was he, uh, he, he, he suddenly sort of came up with the Lone Wolf game books and published them himself? I can't imagine that was a cr- tremendously popular move. Uh, who who was that? Uh, Red Fox originally. I don't know what imprint. Oh. Who's an imprint that is? Uh, if only we had uh, an equivalent of Richard Osman who could just quickly look up this sort of information for us. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, Hutchinson Publishing, Sparrow and Beaver Books were were involved uh, at least. Yes, I think Red Fox was an imprint of one of those, maybe. Um, but it, it went through a number of different ones. Um, I seem to recall Beaver. I'd beaver ring. I, I have me, I have memories of beaver. But Lone Wolf was the the one that um, uh, basically you had a persistent character through every. But it adventure. wasn't your character. Yes, it was a. Very and you know specific... that annoyed me. I avoided it for a long time because I wasn't interested in playing somebody else's character, which is a stupid, snobbish thing that teenage. Well, boys but in the with. fighting fantasy ones, you were basically a, the generic fighter. Just, but you were you picturing that. Generic fighter yourself. Yes, you know? yes. Not necessarily Whereas as there yourself. There was a picture but... of your character on the front of Flight from the Dark, which yeah. is the first with that terrific uh, Gary Chalk arc art, of course, yeah, for most of to... the series. But I, I did, I've always wondered how contentious it was. But there, there, there was a lot of innovations in the Lone Wolf system in that it used a D10 combat system. Or there was a random number table that you could stab out with a pencil. Yeah, because people would be expected to find six-sided dice in the in local shops, but tens were, you know, hard to come by. <laughs> yeah, you could go to the to the newsagents in the 80s and, and now, and they'd probably have a card with six-sided dice on that you could buy. Yeah. For a few pennies. If you'd asked them what a ten-sided, you know, if you've got a ten-sided die, they probably didn't know such a thing existed. I certainly had an enormous amount of trouble trying to get polyhedral dice in 
84, I think I was trying to buy a set. Couldn't find them anyway. You had to go in like model shops and they would sell mm. out quite quickly. Um, I had trouble in 2014 when I ran my first game of D&D. Yeah. Really? And, well, that, there was nowhere in the middle of Oxford, which is where I was living at the time. There weren't any game shops. There was one out Gamescape in Far East. Yeah, Gamekeeper is out, is out on the... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's out, it's out east, and I lived west and worked centre. Um, so nice. in the end, I I managed to the the games workshop there turned out to still have a set of dice, and uh, the staff said, oh, "Oh, you're not still playing Necromunda, are you?" <laughs> um, which which the combination of the disdain for that. Did you not <laughs> say I have an elderly relative who still plays? <laughs> um, Male game was exclusionary. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I, I think there are some quite interesting things about Necromunda. Anyway, um, but that's how mm. I got my set. Make my a first note set for another hmm? Well, there we are. Yeah, yeah it's when, when we were talking about through, uh, Dragon Warriors uh, a few episodes back. I, I know uh, Dave has said that his he feels his greatest mistake in retrospect was requiring the weird dice for, yeah. because this was a, a thing sold in, in much. The, I mean, obviously it was it, well, off, it, off the back of the fighting fantasy boom. Here was, was stuff that formatted like to be sold yes. in bookshops. Yeah, yes. I don't think um, many people around who got into the hobby, well, possibly kind of post sort of White Wolf time, but certainly in in the real. Um, Fifth edition D and D boom, which has been a huge boom. That you know, ten years before that, there was kind of a, a bit of a lull, and then by the time you got to the the latest edition, it's it's had a because of YouTube and things like that, it's had an exposure that I don't think any of us were expecting. People who've come into it from there, of course, you've got your phone apps. You can get the dice. You don't just buy the dice, of course. You buy lots of different dice that are made out of all sorts of weird materials, and there are strange little craft shops on Etsy and things, sculpting dice, and there are Kickstarters for these dice. Getting hold of polyhedral dice is now a question of sort of choice paralysis on which yeah. ones to get, <laughs> exactly. not people look at you as if you're mad because everybody knows dice have six sides. Even so if casinos you're going to sell a set of dice, put more than one D6 in. Come yeah. on. <laughs> three used to be three was the standard. Yeah. So... It was a thing in the 80s. There was a push, particularly the mid-80s, sort of 85-ish. There was a push from a number of games to using D6s. This was the sort of thing, in fact, that was, of course, pioneered by Tunnels and Trolls. They <laughs> pop up periodically in it. But Steve Jackson, not that Steve Jackson, Steve Jackson Games, that was very he did GURPS. One of his goals that. was he wants to use six-sided dice. Mm -hmm. They're easily available. Everybody understands them. You can get a nice bell curve, all these things. And when it comes to something in the early to mid-80s that you're selling in bookshops that you can take a book token and go to buy mm. as if it's a normal thing to do, <laughs> like a you don't human. then want to have to say to those people, now you can't play this unless you can track down these. Mm. The best you'd be able to do was to put a, an ad in the back saying, send the publisher you know, a postal order for £4, and we will allow 28 days for delivery, and we will send you... <laughs> I, I well, think they, they couldn't have done that. I think that's actually the perfect, the thing that Finding Fantasy got as the perfect retail intersection, because I've certainly heard from game publishers, uh, even recently, they, they really 
feel edgy about putting out expansions of existing games, because no matter how big you put the print on the front cover saying, this is an expansion, you need the base game to play, mm-hmm. somebody is going to buy it for Little Johnny and Christmas will yeah. be ruined. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I think what... I think Fighting Fantasy originated this, the idea that you you would combine into one the game system and the adventure. You know, tunnels and the tunnels yes. and trolls ones you had yeah. to have tunnels and trolls. The choose your own adventure doesn't really have a game system, but but Fighting Fantasy does merge those. Yeah, it's a very basic system. Um, but yeah, but it, but it, it means you can say here is a fight, here are the stats, now go away and resolve it. Yeah, yeah. Without well, having to repeat that, that. The reason that tunnels and trolls suited solos so well is because it's a very simple system. Sure, but it's a full role playing system, and it probably kept the game alive. Because, of course, you got that thing where, for years, nothing was being published for it. But you know what? If you can't get your friends around, you can still replay one of the old adventures. Uh, which I did, and a lot of people did. And it gave it a, a, a little boost that so many other role-playing games didn't get during that fallow period in the mid-80s. Everything happened in the mid-80s, didn't it? When there was all these financial problems and things, and the role-playing industry didn't exactly fall off a cliff, but it certainly slid pretty rapidly down a scree slope. <laughs> I mean, Flying Buffalo nearly went out of business. Mm-hmm. And that was really when um, game books were, were actually massively hitting their stride. So this was, I guess, the game book. Was, Firetop Mountain was 82, wasn't it? And then yeah. from then till the late 80s? That was the heyday, I Well, they, they kind of kept going until about 95, but... They yeah, did. I, I think it was more stumbling on, wasn't it, at that point? Yeah. I can tell you from personal experience, I used to, every time I went to a new town or anything, I'd go into the bookshops and I would look for new game books. And from, well, certainly 88, uh, it was very hard to find any. Because before that, you would go in and you could tell that when the boom happened, because it wasn't just fighting fantasy then. They were having to make make an actual game book section. Mm -hmm. Just like YA fiction suddenly got its own section to yeah. the point where I went into a shop and they got a number of them including YA supernatural romance was one section there are so many books <laughs> and, and a genre I had never heard of mm-hmm. and I well this is great you know that's that's mm. appealing to someone but suddenly we started getting all of those alternative books um, things that I had never heard of or imagined um, TSR, of course, tried repeatedly and I think a bit desperately. Oh, I've got to um, do... Light on Quest Mountain. Yeah, that was an endless quest, it. wasn't it? Yeah. They didn't just try game books, they kept trying it with D&D and they did things like um, Invisible Ink so that you could play a solo adventure and you couldn't, you didn't have to turn to the right paragraph exactly because you would really with, it, with the pen, Invisible Ink. Great gimmick. You can only play it once. Because <laughs> um, the must... thing, thing with invisible ink is when it's in, when it's visible, it's just ink. <laughs> um, I, I did, that's reminded me that the the old Redbox Basic D and D opened basically with a with a a game book section. Yes, to teach yeah. you the mechanics of uh, of D and D. Yeah, the, 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 the fantasy trip had uh, death test. Uh, GURPS had a night's work. Pan- was, Pan- death, was death test included in? I don't think so. I not think it was not originally, but I, I think it may have been bundled later. Um, the first edition of Paranoia has a solitaire adventure just in, mm-hmm. in the player's book. It almost became, for a while, it was the standard way of teaching. Uh, you're the person who's bought this book. We're going to teach you a bit of the mechanics yeah. while you play. Th- and now get your friends around and you can. Yeah, exactly. It. it was in Champions. West End Games, who did Paranoia, were particularly good at it. They did it in um, uh, their. 
I think pretty much all of the sort of the they D6 did it in stuff Star and Star Wars, Wars. Uh, yeah. and it's really it's really good because you know you follow something where you can take a choice or you can go through and see. It's not just an example of play. No. You're involved in it. It's yeah. kind of it's kind of an example of play that you've got to be active about, and I and... think that helps for learning. And obviously, because one of the things with the examples of plays, there's always only one outcome from it, yes. which mm. is the one they tell you. And I, I think actually being able to look back and go, okay, but what if you didn't succeed at the role? Or yeah. what if you did succeed yeah. at the role? How would that change what happens in the game? That is a very useful bit and of information. And it's probably a much better way of teaching instead of, you know, Johnny mm. rolls I mean, some of those 20 things... and fails if you're actually making the role, yeah. Some of them were only like fourteen, fifteen paragraphs long. The, yeah. They were they were there to just specifically teach you how to do roll and attack, whatever. But you'd got that then. That was terrific. That is, that's kind of out of favor. That seemed to be mirrored at the height of the, the kind of game book. I don't. I suppose what I don't know, uh, as far as that, we've talked about the game book craze here, and it really was. Uh, it, it was a, a bit of a craze for a while. I don't. Was mm. that mirrored in the states? Cause sort they, of. Fighting Venstey never really made it over there, I don't think. It um, did, it did, but it it was mostly when people think about that kind of stuff in America. Again, this is from my experience, but I didn't go to the states until eighty eight, and then through sort of the early nineties. By which point, of course, it had faded a bit. Um, I had the Grey Star, the Wizard books, which was a, a, a mm-hmm. sort of companion <gasps> I've not series. Finished talking about Lone Wolf yet? But anyway, we'll there you get go. Companion <laughs> to Lone Wolf. <laughs> and I think you've got them now, haven't you? Nick? I've got the Grey Star, the Wizard ones. Yeah, and I, if you, I think I, if you I, think I still have those too. But if you look at the copies Nick's got that were my old ones, they've got uh, Richard Corbin covers, and I bet that yours don't, Roger. I have the standard UK. Yeah. The the American ones all had a different dress. Uh, some of them had slightly different names. Um, I think it was actually spelt differently because it's called Grey Star. But things like That's that. So yeah, there, there were G R E Y. Yeah, there were different editions. Oh, maybe is A Y online. TSR's Endless Quest didn't really do a lot of business in the UK because they weren't to the game book market as good as. Um, the things that we'd already got, the Fighting Fantasy, the Lone Wolf. I suppose this is what I'm trying to get. Was it a unique... Because there was something about Fighting Fantasy that was, as I say, quite British, and a lot of that came from yeah. the artwork for me. And uh, the, the choose-your-own-adventure always felt very American. Well, me. yeah, they were. Because they were very, very popular, and they crossed over into a, a market that didn't want a game as such. Yeah, yeah. So, but you certainly had endless quest books. That was something TSR did, which were their kind of D and D mass market game book. They also did Heart Quest, which was remarkably innovative for TSR in that they were kind of fantasy romance novels, mm. and I, I think uh, certainly several of them, possibly all of them, were written by women. And they were about, uh, your character would be kind of trying to escape the potential life of drudgery and expectation of being a normal, uh, you know, fit into that woman's role. So they really had a lot going for them. And inevitably, of course, because they were for girls, the series was cancelled after six of them. (laughs) But the the first four apparently sold fairly well, but they just didn't get any traction. You know, whether it was seen as being, well, actually, the hobby's for boys, whether TSR just thought, eh, we're not going to push this, I don't know. I've got to say, I can't help thinking that if I, if I had not had a TSR badge on the cover, if they'd just been sold by J Random Other Company, they might have done better. That may be true. Yeah. 
but you you had um, there were Car Wars books. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Steve, I the, have some of those. Because the Steve obviously. Jackson confusion is, of course, the Steve Jackson of Steve Jackson games um, was the first person that Jackson and Livingston got <laughs> who wasn't them. He wrote, but, I was so confused because Scorpion Swamp, which is what Steve yep. Jackson, the American Steve Jackson wrote, is so different in style to any of the others. And Steve Jackson, the British one, is quite into doing innovative stuff and so I, I for the longest time, in fact I still can't quite believe it's not the British Steve Jackson that wrote Scorpions from. Well, Incredible isn't it? Yeah. It really does avoid confusion by hiring somebody who's got the same name as you. <laughs> exactly. I, I remember rumours at the time that the Sorcery series was written by Steve Jackson US Oh right. Which I mean it wasn't but Well he I mean he was really he was really into and he certainly knew the tunnels and trolls stuff because he he was the editor on Monsters Monsters. Um but as you're saying his fantasy um sorry his the fantasy trip books there were solo programmed adventures for that. He was really into it. He did uh, a Car Wars. Now Car Wars is a board game or oh, there've been role playing spin-offs but it's a board game and there was a solo adventure for that called Convoy. Which was a, a a really kind of weird thing because you were playing um, as distinct from in, the Car Wars game books as yeah yes. they came later. Yeah. Uh, they, this yeah. this was in Auto Duel Quarterly first, and then it got a standalone publication later, expanded yeah, version. But but that's in, in, in much that, how Steve Jackson games worked. So you, you've got things like you know here is your roadmap of, of and you can choose your route, and every ten miles there's a number to look up, and that's you know your effectively your random encounter for that section of road. So it's very much sort of a solo board game. Kind of yeah. rather than a game book, but it's a single. Exactly. But it's a single scenario. I mean, you could replay it, but because they're interesting, that, there seems to be a real plethora of uh, kinky road things. Um, because we had Freeway Fighter, we had um, we had the Car Wars books. We had Joe Joe Diva um, of Joe of Lone Wolf wrote a whole series of um, what were they called? Um, uh, Highway Warrior. Highway Warrior, Freeway Warrior. Freeway, something like thank the you. Movie. Mm. Uh, 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 it's almost as if the Mad Max films had come out at about this time, <laughs> isn't it? I hadn't, I hadn't finished uh, wh- whacking off. Uh, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> Nick. I very nearly introduced you as as a man who's had a great deal deal of solo pleasure experience. <laughs> I, I was going to say wanging on, but I I'll, I'll avoid wanging on because it will sound bad. <laughs> you're, you're, you're trying to bring back, bring us back to Lone Wolf, aren't you? <laughs> I'm trying to bring us back to Lone Wolf because I had things to say about it. Um, it was innovative <laughs> um, as well because you it had a, a sort of experience system in the sense yeah. that mm. for every one of the books you finish, you got to choose another Kai discipline, which is basically a special ability. Um, Healing. And, and so that was that was really. Yeah, you were a magic monk, weren't you? And you were like the, the yeah. only survivor the, of an the attack on the monastery. That became of the Lone Wolf books was there were uh, twelve in the original series, um, and the, uh, it was the problem of combinatorial explosion in that every one of them was limited to three hundred and fifty paragraphs. But towards the end, almost all the paragraphs were: Do you have this kind of discipline? Yes, turn to this. Do you have this kind of discipline? So there became very very little choice. But they were really. Evocative. It was a really nicely sketched world and very evocative. I I really loved the early ones. I, I mean, I've got, like, I think they've gone up to thirty three now, which I have all upstairs. And then they got reprinted again, and and they've had deluxe editions. And Flight from the Dark got rewritten by Joe Diva uh, until he unfortunately passed a few years ago. But he signed my book before he did so. Not immediately before he did so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 no, that, that makes it sound like a bit of an ambulance chaser. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, I, I did have the uh, Guide to Magnamund, which was yeah, not as substantial yes. a book as, as the Titan, but you know, quite interesting in itself. The, the thing I, really I, thing I them, but... particularly remember about that, apart from it, but they were the first ones I, I played with a continuing character and some sort of improvement, yeah. uh, was I think it was in some of the early ones. You know, you've got to the point in the story where, all right, this this lone wolf guy is, is clearly, you know, he saved the world a couple of times, or at least the local kingdom. He's he's a bit respected, so when they send him out on the next mission, uh, they they sent they sent a, a bunch of people to help him. All of whom, of course, are going to have to get slaughtered so that you can exactly. go through so the. Yes. And, and I distinctly remember feeling, oh God, they're giving me another escort. How are they going to get killed this time? Exactly. That's <laughs> the, also the problem was in the second book, um, Fire on the Water, you got the most powerful magical sword in the entire world. And if you didn't have that book, you were pretty knackered for the rest of the Though, was it book three or four? You're actually going through a battle at the start of it. And that was, yeah. that I remember that, that sticks with me. It was very I, that's, atmospheric. Um, Chasm of Doom, I think that's number four. But yeah. uh, yes, that was, it's very good. Um, they, they're really good books. They had their problems, but it made me yeah. then play through the fighting fantasy and, and design my own rudimentary experience, experience system and play the <laughs> persistent <laughs> character through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. that, so that, uh, should we talk about some other game books that came out in that boom time then? We had the, the boom Lego time when, um, Fighting Fantasy had not just got a whole series of books; it even had its own magazine, uh, Warlock, which and a uh, lot of the later books. I, I certainly remember Caverns of the Snow Witch was basically was one of the adventures from Warlock, with a whole extra bit tacked on the end. Um, and so, a lot of a lot of the book House, House of Hell did a similar thing, I believe. So I have to ask, what was actually in Warlock? They well, were little adventures, and... but it wasn't just that. I, no. I mean, I remember the. I have a page, two pages, I'd ripped out of. Uh, it was issue nine, in fact, which I've still got in with my tunnels and trolls stuff. And it was an article called uh, "Monster Conversions," I think, by Graham Davis, I believe. Mm. And all it was 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 the idea that I mean, the the fighting fantasy role playing game was around at that time, uh, the basic one anyway. I don't think the advanced one would come out maybe that didn't at that point. Quite late, quite late. And it's um it was a, it was conversions, simple conversions. So that if you were playing Lone Wolf or God forbid Grail Quest or one of these other things. Hey Um All except for there was one, what was that called? There was a particular game book style where the entry for it says um it doesn't actually use statistics for any of the uh, monsters you come up against. And it's impossible to convert. But it meant you could convert from Tunnels and Trolls or whatever to Fighting Fantasy. And because Fighting Fantasy is so simple, it was actually very straightforward. And it mm. included D&D. And it became this sort of Rosetta Stone article where, before I realised that actually I don't need to convert anything, if I'm running a game for someone I can just, you know, make up the numbers, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I thought, this is terrific. This This... I can take something from this book and I can use it in this book. So it did have a lot of articles on that. It had interviews with John Blanche. I wonder if that grew out because they did a they did a monster manual for Fighting Fantasy. Out of the pit. Out of the pit, mm. which I have signed twice by Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone, I think 20 years ago. Twice? Apart. 
yeah, they signed it twenty years when I before when I got it, and then when I met them again twenty years later, I got them signing again. Um, and I did they not was, say why? Do you, why are you always carrying this I book around? It's been it would twenty be years. A quirky, interesting thing, and they look yeah. very confused. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> when, they, when they signed it again, when they but signed my copy of Warlock of Fire Top Mountain, they said, "Where did you get this? Have you actually read it?" Because I, I got a thing about not bending books. I, I, I find it very difficult to bend the spinal books. It upsets me. <laughs> Mm. So I, when I when I hold the book, I, I I hold it in a way that I can only presume is going to cause me major problems with my hands <laughs> in a year or two um, to stop it from bending. So of course I turn up, you know, thirty years after the damn thing came out, looking like I just bought it. <laughs> this hasn't been on the on the market for that time. Yes. Yeah, so additional um, the competitors and so on, they got a bit weird. Most of them followed the format of let's do a mass market book. Um, so the Endless Quest books, obviously from TSR, they yeah. were big in America. They were less big over here. There was... Uh, was it Sagar the Barbarian? Was that the Flint, Dill and Gygax one? That sounds uh, familiar. It, it rings a bell. I think it was so. Anyway, they came out... They weren't a massive hit, but they were... But there were the historical ones. Remember those escaping from Colditz and the Madame Guillotine and oh, all yes. those? Yeah. Mm. I mean, the ones I remember as the main competitors were the um, uh, uh, the kind of... Uh, is it Jamie Morris who did... Um, You're conflating two people. Right? Uh, Jamie Thompson. I apologise. Did Jamie Thompson do Talisman of Death, which was the first time I'd read yep. any... Of her, uh, of any of hers. I'm sorry, Jamie. Right. Uh, any of his. Two, two um, things about, about Jamie Morris. One is called Jamie Thompson. I'll, I'll yeah, so, so Talisman um, of Death was Jamie Thompson, Mark Smith. Mark yeah. Smith, that was it. Because I, I often think Dave Morris did Talisman of Death because no. Jamie uh, Thompson and, and Dave Morris often work together later they on. They do. They, um, they did, in fact, do a, a game book together that you can play online called Can You Brexit? And it was, <laughs> it came out before Brexit had actually been voted through and happening and you had to go through and make the decisions to make a successful Brexit which it turns out is practically impossible and the book is remarkably accurate depressing anyway, but yes he, he was he's very into um, ninja wasn't he because well, he did way of the so tiger way of the tiger which has that the main innovation i remember there was that all the combats were very there was no uh, roll your skill roll roll it skill you had to choose a certain move to do and you were skilled in it or not and it was all it, it, the combats were there were little diagrams of, of the guys yeah, doing the martial was, arts weren't there uh, unfortunately they never think they have now by Kickstarter. It was a series of six game books, all links, a la um, Lone Wolf. The last one, if you completed it, you ended up abandoned in hell, and that was the end of your six, uh, six <laughs> series. Um, but I, that's because there was intended oh. to be a seventh... Um, uh, a seventh game book, which I think hmm. has now been completed and released via Kickstarter. Yeah, there's, there's also been well, a Volume nice. Zero prequel. Oh, has that? Interesting. That, it was good because you ended up... You started off as a ninja, then you actually took over a town and became the overlord of a town. Uh, they were really good books. It wasn't the 80s without Ninja, so I mean they were bound <laughs> to be at least somebody would do it. We um, had Grail Quest of course with John's yes, favourite author on. Herbie Brennan. I encountered, so Herbie they, F. Brennan well, they, he, I always knew him as J.H. Brennan, which is how he wrote the Grail Quest books. And they no, I are... always think of him as Herbie F. Brennan. <laughs> <laughs> they were... Um, they were a revelation to me because they were comedy. Uh, they, oh, they were, were they? Is that well, just what he said? Or? I really enjoyed them. They were very... I remember one... Um, I don't know. It, it, 
you were ex- they were full of little quirks and eccentricities like one of them you had to that. fold a paper hat to get get out of a room and one is like there's a man eating carrot in here the carrot he's eating is screaming and asking him not to stop it fun of little fully little jokes like that which i really enjoyed it, it was like a faux um uh it, it was set in it was grail quest because it was arthurian britain um and you played Pip, who was a bad Excalibur Junior. I really liked them. They were very good. There were seven, seven of them, I think. In Sounds the like being trapped in a lift with the children's entertainer. Wow! I went for <laughs> little old me. I really enjoyed them. Uh, they were very hard. Uh, they, I, I mean, I have read. Is it Myth and Magic? He did or Man, Man Myth and Magic? Man, Myth and Magic. I will and, absolutely uh, time agree. Ship. I'm not arguing. They're awful. I mean, they're just awful. Aren't they? But that, uh, to me... Look, I... look up Timeship and just read the description of, of how to read the dice. I mean, he, the guy cannot... He's right. very flowery. But... jeez. Oh, um, but although I can see it's the same man who wrote the Grail Quest book, just just work for me um, for Grail Quest. I no, really that's lovely. I, 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 don't, oh, I don't think there's a wrong way to play... And, you know, people's taste is, is terrific. It doesn't matter if you're into something I'm not. That's fantastic. I think the shit. I think he's a terrible writer. Um, I think he's one of the very few books that if it was on fire, I wouldn't try to put it out. I would now, indeed possibly reach all any of his. Even the Dark Crystal novelization, uh, which he also did. I think I would actually <laughs> reach for the lighter fluid and uh, start oh uh, fanning goodness. it along. Because I'm not saying I was, you know... Um, Hurt in any way by it. I'm just mortally affected by it. <laughs> show, show us on, on show us on this model brain where the book touched you. <laughs> the trouble is, I came across Man, Myth, and Magic first. Well, I can yeah. see. I mean, I will acknowledge that is not good. Anyway, let's move on from Girl. Well, I, I would <laughs> like to uh, mention the other uh, major thing by Mark Smith and Jamie Thompson. Uh, which is the, the one I got more into. I, d- I didn't really get into the Japanese Falcon. stuff. Mm-hmm. Falcon, yes. Um, which I never read. Saw them. Thought they looked interesting, but tell me about those. So this this was a total of six books. They they did the first four as a batch, and then the other two came out a year later. And you are a time agent. Mm. Uh, and you might think, my word, that will give me an awful lot of possibilities for... Um, Doing unexpected things for the book, and you would be right. So they set up the so they set up the time travel so it doesn't happen. Uh, <laughs> yes. ba- basically, uh, you, you have time holes, right? And They're basically historical adventure, historical science fiction, more or less. And basically, you, yeah. you, you go from yeah, present day thirty thirty three to eighteen twelve, mm-hmm. and that and that is a fixed displacement. And you spend a day in eighteen twelve, you come back a day later in thirty thirty three. And generally, they, generally they aren't close enough that you can jump from one to another um, the hard way. Okay. Um, and that that helps pin it down. Um, it also had no standard combat system, which is unusual by that point. Um, basically, generally, a, a fight will be over in one or two manoeuvres, and you, know, you you shoot somebody with your plasma pistol and. Chances are they're either grievously wounded or dead if you hit them at all. So, My memory of Falcon is it was much more about the equipment, wasn't it, than the combat? It was well, the... the one of the things that I will admit got me very enthused was some lovely tech art by Nick Weeks. Mm. Mm. Um, 
basically this is in the introductory section the main the main illustrations were done by somebody else but in that intro you have you know this is the kit you've been issued with this is what your time machine looks like this this is what your um personal armor looks like that kind of thing and it was just lovely um it was also for me one of the first to use lots of tags so it would say things like you know, you get to this paragraph score a k um and then in the next book it would say, yeah, for each K you got, score plus one or minus one point, and, yeah. and give, give you an yeah, overall nice. performance rating. Hmm. Uh, it would. I don't remember. I can't confirm this for certain. I, my memory may be faulty, but I think surely not. Roger. It's very likely. <laughs> but I, I think it also said things like, you know, if if you've seen the parade in Vienna, when you get to this paragraph that you might meet multiple times, mm-hmm. then go to X because that's essentially saying, okay, you've now run out of time to. Visit these various places. You need to go on to the next stage. Time limited ones, yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the actual stories, I will admit, I don't remember in a lot of detail. I remember some of the high points more than more than the whole thing. Um, but that was that was a lot of fun, and I, I played those with great enthusiasm. Yep, they were they were great. I, I loved Falcon. A couple of the weirder ones I, I remember. Um, I bought the Asterix one. And there was a Famous Five game book in the same sort of series, and they came in a clear plastic wallet because they were full of stuff. (laughs) You had um, a wooden die, I think with pictures on it. Um, The main thing I remember was a little bit like a bookmark, but it had um, transparent windows at different areas, so if you put it over a certain page, certain letters were visible or certain numbers or whatever. So it had all these kind of accessories so you could play the game, and then you could use all these things. Oh, you've you know, you've picked up such and such a piece of equipment or a scroll that was represented then by one of these accessories. I don't know what the famous fire was like because I, I actually really liked Eni Blighton, but I was more Magic Faraway Tree. Never, never read this oh. famous five. So they were interesting, but from a game book point of view, I thought it was pants, which is a real disappointment. <laughs> yeah. Were they, um, was that Osborne did a few kind of half game books, half? I had, yeah. I had the Asterix. If you really want to touch on half game books, half something else, the very first sort of game books were apparently a series called Tracker that Transworld put out in the early 70s, I think. And they predate everything else, and they're almost completely forgotten, but they, they're sort of, they had puzzles and games and bits and pieces as part of the narrative. And I don't know anything else about them, so I suspect they're not very much like what we're thinking of here. Yeah, as, as they may be more like the Osborne kind of stuff that I'm thinking of. That was things like, can you find the bird on this page? Yeah. But it would then follow through to... Um, sorry to say follow through. But it would then follow on. <laughs> I've said much worse in this. You have, you have. Um, other game book series then. There was a three volume series, which I know you've got, Nick, called The Cretan Chronicles, which all my now, American I, friends I found hilarious. Those. I never played the Cretan Chronicles. I never played those at the time. I have played them relatively recently. They've got a bizarre mm-hmm. system of um, honour. Like if you yeah. run out of honour, your character just immediately kills himself, and that's the end of your adventure. <laughs> um, or if your honour ex- no, you have shame and honour. If your shame right. exceeds your honour. They are. I think they were written when I looked into it. They were written by two schoolboys. Um, yeah, there were th- well, there were three schoolboys: schoolboys. Um, Honigman, Butterfield, and the other one. And they'd written a book called "What Is Dungeons and Dragons," 
which was an explanatory book, I think it was published by Penguin or Puffin Plus, about how to play one of these games. And they were really, Possibly the really book they'd wanted God. from Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston yeah, back in the exactly. Because exactly. Ian, Ian Livingston did Dicing with Dragons, didn't he? He eventually did one of those sorts of books, but I don't think it was Puffin. Um, but yeah, they, they wrote that when they were still at school, and then I think a couple of years after, they did the... Um, oh, you've got the... You've found the Asterix books there, Sean. I have. Uh, I, I yeah, they sell for quite a bit of money now, them. apparently. Oh. I'm told. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still on a shelf in my bedroom, my old bedroom and parents' house. Oh. All mm. well, your books haven't been sold off or taken to a tip then. No, because I'm supposed to do that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Did somebody get wind of the fact you've got some Herbie Brennan volumes on your shelf? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> they are still upstairs. Um... <laughs> Uh, what else had we got kicking around then? Um, there was, well, there was the Dice Man. Dice Man was the uh, it was the it was the magazine. It was by Pat Mills of 2008 fame. Mm. Uh, I always wanted, I never saw it on a shelf. I never managed to get it because there was a Judge Dread one amongst uh, other ones. And I yeah, there was one for Slania. They did multiple volumes though. Is the, that the how ben- you say Slay? I always say it like I'm from Birmingham, Sloyd. <laughs> but you say Slanya, do you? Slanya. I would say Slanya, yeah. Sloin. Right. We can trust Shim's pronunciation more than mine, even uh, though yeah, it's, yeah. it's similar. <laughs> it's just, if you, if you just had me to go by, no. Shim, I think you can regard as having a, a bit more authenticity. I'm never, ever going to think of him as anyone other than Slain, though, I'm afraid. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, there Sorry. we go. Um, yes, Dice Man, was, it was only like seven of them or something, wasn't it? It was a very short-lived... Um, I don't know if that was known in America at all, where Dice Man is uh, basically Andrew Dice Clay, as far as I'm aware, um, a rather tedious comedian uh, who was big at a certain point in the 80s and 90s. Um, I don't think they were related. No, they um, weren't at all, but that's the problem. The... If you say Dice Man, that's what everybody in America thought of at that mm. time. There was a brief um, phenomenon, uh, their real height, probably as it was starting to peter out, there's a brief um, flurry of two player game books, so you could sit quietly and read a game book with your mates. Yeah, um, what was, was it Clash, was of, Clash Princes? of the Princes? Was the fighting fantasy version of it. Yeah. Joe Diva did the was it the Combat Heroes one? Mm. They ah, but really Combat Heroes, yeah, that, I don't think you can I mean, yes, they're books and they're a game. Yeah. Uh, and they were two player. But they were like but combat. They, but they took their idea from Ace of Aces and Gunslinger and Lost Worlds, yeah. which were Alfred Leonardi's um, two player picture books. Yes. Where you yeah. would choose a maneuver for your Sopwith Camel, for example, um, and then turn to a certain page, and, and that would have a little grid on it that when your opponent chose his manoeuvre and he would say, you know, 14, you go 26, and you'd cross-reference and then look up the picture, ah. and you would see that he'd just shot the rudder off your plane. Yes. That kind of thing. Or <laughs> and, and you'd just cut the leg the, off your um, opponent. Yeah, yeah I like played way too much Lost Worlds. I've got a I've box got, full I've upstairs. Lost Worlds <laughs> <laughs> Flying Buffalo, of Tunnels and Trolls fame, uh, did in fact take over Lost Worlds. And, I saw and keep that. It mm. Some of them are a bit um, uh, in rather poor taste when I looked on their website. The Japanese <laughs> ones, I've never tried. Uh, yeah, um, I, we should get our Lost Worlds sections together. Uh, mm. uh, I got but because race. there's no actual, it's not a choose-your-own-adventure type thing, no, it's purely anyway, the format. Yeah, I don't the, think the, the combat heroes do technically have a single-player mode, but it's a bit rubbish. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. It's like <laughs> flying over a map, isn't it? Um, it's it's like many one, board remember, games, isn't it? Um, I Bardic the Thief and Corius the Prince was a couple. Mm-hmm. 
um, uh, that were two-player as well. Um, so, and then they started coming out with novelizations of the game books um, towards the end. Well, that was so, actually, it was actually quite early. Uh, Lone Wolf, uh, Paul Barnett. Lone Wolf did it. Okay, um, yes. Did, did writing as John Grant obviously uh, yep. did, did quite a lot of those, and they were they're apparently right. well. He was quite a good writer, yeah, yeah, <laughs> as, 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 as well as well as a friend whom I met a few years later. Um, uh, I, I've, I've got the first two, and they are both quite good. Um, yeah, <laughs> I haven't read it. I didn't. Steve Jackson it. wrote the Trolltooth Wars, which I think is yes. set in um, Alancia. Alancia and Titan, yeah. uh, connecting to the fighting fantasy thing, and. Um, Gary Gygax, of course, doing various bits and pieces, always wanted to be a novelist, and um, I guess nobody told him to stop. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was... Uh, uh, I don't know if you could accuse him of being a good writer, to be fair. Um, Herbie Brennan Saga, Saga of Gord, the got, Road, um, Chapter 10, Opening Line. I rest my case. <laughs> I have got the good con guide on my shelf by um, J.H. Brennan. See this, this line now? Yeah. <laughs> I could just tell you because I have read that book once and that line stuck in my head and it's not like I read it last week I read it when it came out and chapter 10 opens with fill that sodomized sail you mud sucking shit foot the captain was not a man to mince words but basically, oh and there's a little a few, few more bits in there but basically that's it fill that sodomized sail you mud-sucking shit-foot. Just the sort of How thing that a ship captain... How is that not fantastic writing? I would love to... Says the, the published novelist among us. Yes. I'm, I'm a bit <laughs> Maybe we're now, missing you, something. <laughs> you actually have a number of quite well-reviewed, even by me, books uh, about... <laughs> what is it? Is it by um, me as well. That's reminded me of the... Uh, what's the famous line in uh, Lord of Light? The fit hit the Shan. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's about the Shan has an epileptic seizure, but it's, uh, it's basically, <laughs> it's all set up for him to put the line in, the fit hit the Shan. <laughs> um, which is uh, it's a very good line. Fabulous. Uh, uh, that's, um, yeah, if anybody's yeah. expecting a, a complete sort of history and totally um, all-encompassing view of, of game books and so on, we're going to miss a ton because well, they, uh, they know, were popping only, up and dying I mean, every yeah. week. There were Star Wars ones, um, Marvel superheroes, TSR Dragons. published. Yes, yes. I, um, yeah. I actually got the Doctor Strange one. I think I might still have that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, no, there was but, a series yeah. called Combat Command, which was basically we will get a. An existing science fiction property, uh, as it might be, you know, Starship Troopers, mm-hmm. prefer- preferably with a safely dead author, uh, and we will get a, a a writer to write a book set in that world. Right. And they only did one in each world, and some of them were quite fun, but yeah, nothing yeah. brilliant. There's also Ice, who did the uh, Middle Earth role playing and all that kind of thing. I think it was them who published. Was it? It was either called Tolkien Quest, or eventually it became Tolkien Quest. They put out a couple of. Um, game books, and I think that their license didn't let them actually do that. Um, so there are two <laughs> of this series that are very rare, because they got, they immediately got hit by a lawsuit, but then they came to some agreement and then put out several more. There's some Doctor Who ones as well. Oh, yeah. And was, then, uh... famously, for me particularly, um, you can call it an innovation, or possibly a satire on, on game books. Certainly very fitting. Harry Harrison, author of The Stainless Steel Rat... Yes. Gave us "You Can Be the Stainless Steel Rat," yeah. which used a coin that's, uh, or as he put it, an amphibian bipolar determiner <laughs> instead of dice, 
And no matter what you do, you will discover, if you go back and try to play it again, none of your choices make a blind bit of difference. <laughs> oh, that's so frustrating. Not a one. You always end up at the same place. And I, I think that's completely deliberate. I don't think he sort of misunderstood. He certainly had a sense of humour, so yeah. Well, he was he was uh, a comic writer as much as a, a science fiction writer. Mm. I think. So reduced mm. the amount of work he had to do. I suppose it did, yeah. Uh, I yeah. suppose the other, I don't know if they count as game books, but around about this time, uh, Chaosium started doing things like Alone Against the Dark. Um, which yeah, well, the Matthew Costello stuff, he wrote some very interesting articles in Space Gamer about solo adventures and how to sort of push the, it's well worth looking up, um, how to push the the, the sort of um, state of the art of it. Mm. But yeah, he did those. I mean, uh, Chaosium very... had also done the RuneQuest ones, though, hadn't they? The yes, Alan... They Somebody. I haven't. Uh, I haven't tried that. The 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 alone against the dot dot dot. Uh, uh, do mm-hmm. you feel very um very much like the role playing game that you know the the whole rule set is there and I yeah I they're complicated. If, they are, and I can't remember if there's a summary of the rule set in the books or it, I I think it's expected that you actually have Call of Cthulhu. So probably this doesn't quite fall into our remix. Um, mm. Well, very much like the, the tunnels and trolls stuff. Yeah. Um, yes, there are loads of of um, innovations and so on in there. Uh, for instance, Sewers of Oblivion. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, is the only game book where you've got a chance of contracting osteomyelitis. Um, <laughs> I bet they didn't put that on the cover. It, <laughs> no, it's on the it's on the table at the back with bubonic plague and dysentery and cholera and all the other things you can get in the sewers. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course you had to have the game they were supplements to a game and incredibly Tunnels and Trolls didn't appear as a mass market game book until basically they'd missed the boat Corgi put out um, I think it was an agreement with um, Chris Harvey who was sort of Mr. Flying Buffalo UK and they were slightly bowdlerized editions without the sex and nudity that did crop up in Tunnels and Trolls Adventures uh, they came out 1986, along with a matching edition of the 5th edition Tunnels and Trolls rules. But each book also contained a sort of slimmed down version of the rules. So they were all self-contained. You didn't have to have that volume. Mm, But the thing is, 86, they'd missed the boat. They were a little bit more expensive than the others, something like 295. Uh, Slightly bigger format. And compared to what a lot of other people had been doing, what they'd done was reprinted some of the early Death Trap Equalizer and all these. Very often it was two uh, previous Tunnels and Trolls adventures in one volume. Because they'd been, what, sort of 20-something pages? Yeah, they were, they were small. And people were used to 400 paragraphs, lots of text. So they actually looked a little bit backwards by that point. They didn't mm. tend to put the ones with all the real innovations. And even by that time, of course, they didn't look like innovations anymore. So it's a bit ironic to me that that Tunnels and Trolls actually uh, kind of missed the boom, despite being responsible for it. Yeah. The other series that I, I look back on very fondly now is Bloodsword, and in part oh, that's yeah. because... I've always wanted those, never played them. That's because of a bit of marketing they didn't do. Um, so th- this is five books by Dave Morris and Oliver Johnson, uh, who had, by that point, designed and published Dragon Warriors. Hmm. And the thing one notices once one starts playing, indeed, once one starts looking at the map, is hang on a minute, this is actually the same world as Dragon Warriors. But was it the same publisher? I 
don't remember. Because I'm thinking maybe there's a reason why it wasn't pushed. Well, I think they wouldn't have pushed it simply because um, the the more you cross-reference, the more you think, oh, well, hang on, crap, I, maybe I have to buy this other book before I buy this book. And, it, and, the, and yeah, these yeah. are sta- these are standalone books. They're not Dragon Warriors adventures. Yeah. Um, they got Ross Nicholson to illustrate them, and... I don't have a problem with Ross Nicholson. He did great stuff for fighting fantasy, but it means they do look quite fighting fantasy, which is a right. bit of a shame, I think. They don't really have a distinct look. The really did, um, the revolutionary sorry. thing they did, though, was um, you could have up to four members of the party. And the theory well, was that you would have four people playing, one of whom was the designated book reader. Right. That's ah. revolutionary. Multiple members of the party, I hate to tell you this, but Tunnels and Trolls <laughs> sure. um, did that... Uh, when was that? Dargan's Dungeon Second Edition and Overkill. You can have, I think, a dozen characters, but they did it by level. So if you want to, you can take a couple of really buff guys in, or you can take a little bit of cannon fodder as yeah. well. The, that the, was clever, this did a similar but it thing. wasn't intended for um, several people to play the characters. Yeah, um, it doesn't actually say you could have one person playing multiple characters, but obviously you could. Uh, yeah. you, know, you could have one eighth level character or four second level characters, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, four yeah. character classes and some of the, uh, paragraphs were saying only the player of the trickster should read this bit and then the trickster can decide what to do with that information, whether to share it with the rest of the party or not. Oh, that's, that's fun. <laughs> I mean, there, there's no real betrayal mechanic or anything like that, but I think it does get them a bit more involved in, hey guys, I know this and I can, yeah, I can now share it with you. So that- uh, it also had a gridded tactical combat system. Wow. Which may have been a little much. But... <laughs> <laughs> that seems a bit much. You see, because when you say that, that, that you know, from the description, it sounds to me like that's a, a good, you know, wet weekend, pass the book around, mm-hmm. you know, and read a paragraph at a time type thing. Um, um, ooh, do we have a chessboard here, guys? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't feel well good. But actually, you know, as a, because I've done that with people, I don't know if any of you have, but, I've done well, sitting around yeah, doing a game book together, passing it around. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, just taking it in turn. You know, you you read the paragraph. The next person decides what they want to do, and then they take the book and read a paragraph. Yeah, not read yeah, from the book. It it does highlight one thing that um, this is sort of coming round to in my mind. We started off with um, you. You'd got the mass market thing was almost there, but it wasn't quite the game, and that yeah. eventually became Choose Your Own Adventure and really hit it with Fighting Fantasy. But where solos were really getting all the innovation wasn't Choose Your Own Adventure, to my mind. It was things like Tunnels and Trolls and many of the other um, mm. role-playing games that you could apply to the adventures they sold. And a lot of the, the adventures, I think the um, into the labyrinth and uh, so on the fantasy strip. I think they had maps that came with them and bits and pieces, not just a series of paragraphs. They were very much between a role-playing game and a kind of solo game book, which was stripped down for the not quite non-gamer, but certainly people who weren't in the hobby. Mm. You hit that period with the mass market. You actually moved away from those extras and the complicated mm. rules, as it would have been seen. Just and then, of course. Them. Yeah, you, 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 well, you can't sell that kind of, for many people, it's that first product. Yeah. It can't be overwhelming. It can't be daunting. You can't say to a parent, well, you just need to do this, 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 and this. And they look at it and think, oh, no, he couldn't possibly, that doesn't mean anything, you know. God, I'm a kid cleverer than me. 
and that's where I think Fighting Fantasy got it absolutely spot on. Yeah. You know, they they got just enough in the number of uh, attributes in the way stamina yeah. and skill worked. It made sense, and it wasn't complicated, and it had simple dice. But of course, once you've got a few of those out there, the competitors have to come up with their own version. Well, that's not yeah. too hard. And so we got things like little pictures of dice on the corners of books so you could flip through. And then, of course, you get kids who are really good at stopping on the right page for a 12, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, various types of things that, that they did. But then they start adding stuff back in. All those little bits and pieces you get with that rather expensive Asterix book, for example. Mm. Bit gimmicky, but it's a few extras. Now, they weren't complicated to use, but other games are introducing gridded combat system. Characters with rather more to them. Things you've got to keep yeah, track of. Yeah, I mean, Bloodsword is, is I won't say precisely based on, but certainly inspired by Dragon Warriors. And I was, look, yeah. I was looking through this afternoon uh, before we recorded and thought 30 pages of rules? I've played role-playing <laughs> games that are shorter than that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's obviously they're only small pages, but even so. Yeah. And this is what you start to get. Of course, you, you've got the Fighting Fantasy was aimed, I think, at a younger age group than Choose Your Own Adventure originally. But of course, that market's just growing up a little bit, and they're wanting more, and they're capable, and they've perhaps been exposed to other games. How do you keep them interested? Well, you, you come up with more rules and more things. And so they sort of morph back into being a role-playing game. Well, that's it, because one of the last gasps I remember was, you know, Fabled Lands. Fabled Lands, Lands yeah. Bigger uh, format for a start. But yeah, so these were, I found these in Waterstones when I was a student, and that was that's the last time I can remember really seeing game books Bought mine until Webley's. recently. Um, that, I mean, they were beautiful, but they were clearly mm. aimed at a sort of more adult market. Again, I mean, these were basically role-playing games that they made extensive use of. You had you made a character at the beginning, you had a character class, you made extensive use of the checkbook system, you could buy a house in a town, you had your own inventory, you could go to a bank. Yeah, so, so uh, I You think, were expected I think you have... to know the basics before you got it, onto well, those yeah. books. So. I mean, they weren't complicated for, you know, for me at that or, time. Also, but... in terms of mechanical complexity, you, you've got, I believe, keywords, but you've also sometimes got checkboxes. You know, is, each time yes, you visit so, this, yeah. this, this section... Put a tick yeah, in the this box. Is the and the third time if, you've been here. And, and then maybe yeah. another option will open up because whoever like, it was you were waiting for has arrived. You're absolutely right. And it was really clever and really well done. Oh, I've actually oh, written it. Also, I've always had the greatest respect for Dave Morris, Jamie Thompson. And it was really They ambitious. really pushed, you know, I mean, they, they pushed the envelope, like the stamp, and dropped it in the post and box. These they were like, really uh, did. Go, uh, you, you get on this boat, you end up in, in paragraph 14 of book three. Um, and you could flip back and forth between all the books, and the idea was to have this whole world of these 12 books. Uh, I'd stopped at six. I, there, there was a yeah. Kickstarter for seven, which was a total fucking disaster. In the end, I never got mine that I Kickstarted, and I just bought book seven on Amazon, which is oh. always a nice feeling when you've done a Kickstarter, isn't it? Um, yeah. But yeah, that, you're right. That was the last gasp I can really remember before I just sort of gave up on games. Yeah, th those were coming out in 95, 96, really after the boom oh. is over. Yeah, and and they were role playing games, really. But by that point, I, guess I don't think they certainly. I don't think the publishers quite knew what to do with them. No. The shops didn't have that. The the bookshops didn't have that section anymore, really, of of yeah. those sorts of games. And they're a different format, so they don't they don't look like a normal game book. So you've got to actually have them on different shelving. It's a Suddenly, shame they, are they become hard to sell. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, it it strikes me as well. You know, you're talking about. You know this this increasing dip in the market 
That sounds to me like it parallels more and more people having, for example, a games console than are the age you would otherwise would, expect to play game books. It would yeah. be computer, yeah. By the time it's not know, just computers though, because we, you know, you think the home computer boom in the UK actually started pretty much to the year with when, fighting fantasy. Yeah, but, but, but the, ga- the games you can buy are getting a lot more sophisticated. Very much. Yeah, so. like we were into 16-bit by then, and we were into games consoles. Um, yeah, I'm I'm thinking specifically consoles yeah, because to some right. extent that that fits the same kind of niche. You can have yeah. relatively simple, accessible games that people are happy for mm. their kid to sit down and play. Yeah, the market for interactive fiction in terms of computer games, Zork. Hitchhikers, all those sorts of things. That's always also shrinking. Now it's mm, still yeah. it's still there. It's a bit more a hobbyist thing it, these days. An, but it was mass market now, for it? time. I mean, there were Level Nine and um, oh, yeah. Infocom Magnetic and all those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you can look at right, those yeah. as running kind of parallel with uh, with these. And the the boom and bust is kind of the same sort of period. It was a type of game yeah. that completely in different media got superseded. I suppose a lot of kids who grew up with it either grew out of it or moved on to role-playing games, which are frankly ultimately more satisfying. Well, they might have bought a Game Boy. If you were going to have something to throw in your school bag... Yeah, you don't don't, don't have to fight for the TV with a Game Boy. And and the generation after, yeah, was was really into consoles and it's... um, yeah. I I wonder also, if, if you are... You know, say, say you're sort of 12, 13 in, in the late 80s, and you're interested in these game book things, presumably there are, there are a bunch of second-hand ones floating about, if you can yes, find yeah. it. That's probably true, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. I, I suspect Games Workshop learned from that because you, you, you cannot buy second-hand Warhammer stuff and expect it to be playable because they've changed the rules since those guys bought it four years ago. <laughs> well, that's why they're still going strong, unfortunately. Yeah, well, the world's yeah. most, the UK's most profitable company, weren't they, at one point? Mm. Probably uh, still Which are. is kind of, no, I do not want you to turn off. Why, why do I get an automatic, you know, oh, we're just going to power, power off your monitor because apparently you're not using it. Well, I'm reading the bloody notes on it. Um. Sorry, gentlemen. Just, just tell <laughs> yeah, I mean, to... I'm, I'm, I'm thinking now because actually I was slightly unusual in that I didn't have a console, which tied into the fact we didn't have a TV. Yeah, Um, that that would be less fun to play on a console, Frank. Yeah, but I, I, the only console I've ever had is an Atari 2600 that was left over at a jumble sale that my parents were helping with and was incredibly dated even at the time because everyone else had, Mm. you know, Sega Mega Drives. Um, whereas I had, you know, extremely pixelated Keystone Cops. Yeah, but you could play E.T. Well, I say you could play it. Nobody can actually play it. No, no, no. But, you know, that's, oh, that's the closest we got for a couple of years until it finally gave up the ghost. Um, and, you know, maybe that's partly why I got more into stuff like the game books mm. when other people didn't. Yeah, there certainly isn't one reason why it all mm. sort of collapsed. But when you look at the type of game that was appearing on computers and um, was very similar to game books and this sort of stuff. The rise of fantasy as well. Mm. Because that's another thing with Choose Your Own Adventure. I mean, that's like the first one is, is Your Own Adventure on Sugarcane Island. And loads of those were not the kind of fantasy things. No, well, they were very... Well, D&D starts taking off in particular, and we've got all those cheesy sword and sorcery movies in the early 80s. Fantasy was huge. Yeah. Fantasy not so huge in like 1986. 
suddenly those cheesy B-movies are moving away from the Conan and that kind of stuff to other things. Yeah. It was a shift. I think that's one reason why people were trying the Mad Max style. Well, mm. a lot of it became slight, you know, that was those kind of Spielberg and science fiction and Star Wars was was really uh, much bigger than fantasy around about that time, I think. Also, Pool of Radiance, 1988. I was going to say CRPGs would be your other thing. That yeah. really... First official AD&D computer game rather than any of that other stuff. But you'd had Bard's Tale and Ultima and all that yeah. stuff. Right? Yeah. But... I think that was co-written by, um, oh gosh, is it Jeff Grubb's wife? What was her name? She wrote one of the Heart Quest books, and I think she did Pool of Radiance. Did she? Pool of Radiance really good. And then there's uh, Wasteland, of course. That was a huge success. The sort oh, of yes. post-apocalypse. Yeah, that was the well, Tunnels and still, Trolls I mean, team. We're still dealing with that Fallout. is still a huge franchise now, which mm-hmm. is basically mm-hmm. a continuation of Wasteland. Yeah. But we've obviously we've had a resurgence, and we've had at least two companies, two publishers, have re uh, done Fighting Fantasy. I think three now. Is it three now? Um now, oh, don't get me started to on me, artwork. well, I don't know what the artwork's on, like inside, because I haven't had a look. I don't know if you're using it's the same one. the same. One. It's awful. But from it's the cover, yeah. they've clearly tried to change it and update it. Mm. And I have to accept, the brilliant covers that I remember, brilliant on most of them, some of them weren't so great, on Final Fantasy in particular, it's 40 years ago. I mean, come yeah. on. You don't really expect it to be as relevant in the same way. It's still some of it's still great art but if you take a kid today perhaps they're looking for something different so Um, maybe they're looking for something on those books that I'm not but I think the current ones are terrible well my experience of my own children is that you know well my son is blown away by the artwork in the old fighting fantasy ones he he really likes it and the new ones he doesn't even look at it so it's the the new one is very grayscale uh, and very grainy and mm. on the type of paper they're using, I, I mean, I, I'm sure the artist is very good, but for on the type of paper it's using, it's really muddy and indistinct. And one of the things I remember from the original Fighting Fans, it's really specific and mm. detailed, and you can see behind the, co- the ogre and what's on the table. The and... covers aren't full illustration either. They are they're, no. div- they're using like a sort of medallion in the middle, maybe with a redrawn picture or just a snippet they're much more bold colorful yes in fact often interestingly they're using the old covers but they're in this kind of big as you say in like an orb in the center in a bit Mm. all the sorcery ones have got the old john blanche covers but the interior artwork is not it's it's this graystale i I spoke to john blanche about the sorcery arc because i was a huge fan of of his stuff and the artwork in there it was um Compared to his normal stuff, which was sort of super detailed, his internal work in in the Sorcerer series was kind of bold, but it was that really unusual style he'd got. If you look at it now, it really reeks of the particular 70s feeling of um, science (laughs) fiction and fantasy, where you didn't put them into different pigeonholes. It didn't matter if they were in the same book. It's great. You know, it's slightly psychedelic, but his stuff was always very grounded in dirt. It was as if you'd you know, if he'd got a fairy, he'd probably trodden in something. Yeah, John Blanche's stuff was really sort of deformed and twisted. And, and he had yeah. terrible memories of it and hated it all oh, because no. he'd been drawing it on, I think, leaning on an ironing board, desperately rushing through it to get for the um, the deadline, and got paid a pittance. And he'd never looked at it again. And I just oh. thought that's probably true of everybody who worked on these things. And yeah. that's actually really sad. That's really <laughs> depressing. Because I don't, you know, how, how do you say to somebody, but 
but this kind of changed my view of the world. Yeah, <laughs> I looked at that and wrong. thought, this is amazing. Well, I mean, looking at it from a different angle, you know, if you think, you know, these are people who are rushing things out to meet a deadline, getting paid very little for it, probably not retaining any rights to anything. Oh, no. no like you say, the, the writing is probably in the same boat for a lot yeah. of them. Yeah. Well, bearing that in mind, you know, the the actual... Okay, some of it's terrible, but the amount of quality stuff that did come through, yeah, you, you know, mm. speaks to the talent of the people that were involved in doing this. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I suppose ultimately I got bored. And to be, it's very hard to actually sit down and play a game book now because mm. uh, you know one thing that's very apparent is. Um, there isn't really any plot to speak of or any character development or any any narrative really other than no there's a shady guy who's sort of fingering something just behind his cloak and you know you're going to have a combat encounter here. yeah yeah so they they are not great works of literature but they they were to me mind expanding in in many other ways i think and as you yeah. say shim they, the world building's very good in a lot of them and and um i don't know just opening your eyes to the the kind of possibilities of of, uh, of fiction or of games or being creative, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I, I think they were hugely formative for me. I mean, we've not even touched on all the... Um, was it Casket of Souls and Task of Tantalon and all the impossible, <laughs> super-painted ones that were much more like um, Kit Williams' Masquerade-type puzzles. Mm. Um, and they came out you know, at this sort of period and everybody was doing puzzles and games and things. And it seemed like a huge cultural thing that was actually touching on the role-playing world, mm. which was unusual. And then suddenly that sort of faded away again. But is there anything that any, any of you think we've either missed that's vital or that you'd just like to, to add or touch on as we, we sort of wrap this up? Because we, we probably are at the point now we'll start going, oh yeah, I remember such and such where I'd forgotten <laughs> to get the key. And... Well, I did want to touch on the slightly more modern phenomena of these ultra... Um, uh, exquisite uh, works of art, solo role-playing game things like Thousand Year Vampire. Um, and what is Thousand Year Vampire, Nick? Well, so this is a, a, a it's kind of a they're different in the Choose Your Own Adventure because they are, they're, they're more like create your own story um, and they're much more... Isn't that just being an author? Well, that's it, it's kind of a, 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 a I mean they are, frankly. It's a book of writing exercises, this, isn't it? But is they this are what we would call exercises. solo journaling? Yeah, yeah it's it's kind of solo journaling. And I, yeah. I, okay. I mean, I don't get on with them tremendously. I do find them a little on the pretentious side, and I can I can write things without being forced to. But I, I like, I, I appreciate the principle of, like, they are more prompt for creativity, but they do feel like they have the same... Do they have the same roots in game books, or are they completely different entities? These things. I think if if we hadn't had game books in in the cultural background, they would look quite different. They might still exist, yeah. but but that angle wouldn't be there. I mean, uh, uh, I was flipping through some uh, PDFs earlier, and the typical prompt is you know, some something happens and explain why this has this effect on you, that kind of yes. thing. Yeah. Yeah, not my kind of thing. I'll confess. So, so, it's, so it's quite it's quite structured compared with your classic journaling exercises. Yes, it's, it's they're not just writing, and you do come up with a a similar story to other people, but with very different. Mm. Terms. So it's, it's a very focused theme, then, is it? 
yeah, well, that one particularly, but I think the the others of its ilk are, are quite. There's one for mm. a future Apollo program, and um, there's there's quite a few. There's Iron Iron Sworn, is it Iron Ball? But they're more solo role playing games rather than writing exercises. Yeah, because yeah, that's um, another thing. There are the the role playing games that people have done the sort of GM simulator, so you can play a yeah. game that's a, a proper role playing game, but hasn't got the GM. And interestingly. To me, um, Games Designer Workshop sort of, sort of did that, or tried to tell you that they were giving you a, a solo adventure. Uh, for Traveller, back in certainly early 80s, uh, they did these double adventures, you might remember, where it was the sort of, you know, you flip them over and it's got two short adventures. They did Marooned, Marooned oh, yeah. Alone. Oh. And I was really into game books, so of course, getting into travel, I thought, well, this is cool. So this has got a GM adventure of Marooned, and then it's got the solo version. What the solo version turns out to be is basically telling you to run through the adventure, and when you get to a bit that you, you've got to make a decision, to, to sort of make it up. Um, yeah. it's not what I was at that, at that time, I was very much sort of, but that's not a solo adventure. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Just like I first read On Guard and thought this is not a role playing game, but that that's a game that came out at a time when well, nobody we, we had a long discussion term, about that you know. on uh, yeah. IRDD. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you know, of course, I was I was very fixed in what my definition was of a game book. This was this was definitely not it. But of course, it doesn't have to be that. I mean, you know, yeah. you grow up and finally accept this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But these journaling, they they feel a bit like that in a way, that they're taking a particular exercise and the mythic GM simulator and so on. It's another way of getting an RPG and producing a slightly substandard session of it. To me, yeah, because you've taken away that interaction with a with a creative GM. What again? They lose all the flavour because it all comes from. Yourself, kind of, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I see the, I see the appeal. Yeah. I, in some ways, I see the need. Yeah. But for me, the game book was slightly different. Yeah. In that the author was was presenting a sort of a complete package, and I was dealing with that that was all there in front mm. of me. And the choices I had to make were not sort of like ch- playing chess against yourself. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, because and, of the way it's designed, it feels like there's interactivity. Even though it's pre-written interactivity, yeah, the, it you mean the, feels yeah. like it's. I see. So it's like going to a prostitute. Possibly. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Um, you know, you're making this choice or rolling this dice, and then it is giving you an outcome based on how that's gone. It's you know the story is changing or the the situation is changing based on that in a game book. Yeah. As opposed to with these things, where either. Here's a you know, prompt to create your own story. Yeah, Can you picture those being that. mass market, popular in the same sort of way that we got with Find a Fantasy well, and so on? Do you think it can really... Thing. I mean, I to be honest, I couldn't have pictured that colouring books for grown-ups would have been a thing, but there you go. Yeah, that was something, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> so I can picture it. He's speaking of film and bust. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's necessarily... The game books, I think, necessarily were for younger... I mean, frankly, younger, younger boys. Well, they they didn't have part. to be, but they certainly were. They they were, um, with, with the exception yeah. of your heart well, quests can, and such. Can hmm. we imagine? I, I suppose I've got to flip that question. But can we imagine a resurgence of game books like there was in the eighties? Is that is that no. going to be possible? I, I know. Only I with something like a massive 
Carrington event that knocks out <laughs> the computers in the world and leaves yeah. everybody having to deal with steam-driven printing presses. It's interesting. Uh, there have been several um, publishers say, saying things like, we, we, we will update these. <laughs> so there have been some people saying, oh God, we, we will update these for things. ebook devices and stuff like that. Yeah. And none of them, to, to a first approximation, I had a quick skim earlier, seem to have actually managed to produce this. So possibly it's no. more difficult than I thought it was. I, I don't think it's possible. I do believe that. The, well, I mean, ba- the, game the, the books... basic the basic fighting fantasy approach you certainly could. I mean, you you just have a clickable link for each thing, and when you have oh, a fight, you have no, a fight. No, no, that's that's not what I mean, really. I mean, tunnels and trolls. In fact, they they did that with a thing, and it worked perfectly well. You, you can you can replicate those. They it's... did. I run up a huge bill because they did a fant- They called, they did fist. The fantasy oh, yeah. interactive. Uh, I I, I, I was a I was a bit older and more cynical than you, so. I, I <laughs> and had to trouble. pay your own phone bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't mean that they couldn't. Uh, you can't reproduce a, a game book in in a computer. I mean, I, I don't. Well, think it, it's, it's surprisingly rare that it's happened. But well, you can't. That, that, the, that's partly because of the the situation in the market and the culture. I don't think that can ever be replicated. To yeah. me, game books as a phenomenon, completely of their time, it was just that perfect moment, and that happens with you know any sort of fad and phenomenon. And occasionally you'll get a burst later, but it's never quite the same. Mm. So I, I don't think something like fi- like Friday Fantasy it can't come back in the same way of no. lots of kids being on the bus to school and really excited about the new one and all that because there are so many other things that they're mm. all really excited about. Yeah, again with my uh, son, we have played through Death Trap Dungeon together, but it's uh, a the thing one. that excites him is uh, yeah, it's fucking, thank you, Ian Livingston. But the thing that excites <laughs> him is the interactivity and the pseudo role playingness of it because we mm. we go off piste and just do our own thing after a while. Um, but I, although he has sat down and read the game book himself, it just doesn't have the same feel as uh, as turning on the Xbox, frankly. And that's uh, it's a shame, but it's not a surprise. Probably I would I would have been the same at that age. I think I think yeah. genuinely there was something about that you know less digital period, which obviously. I was there for some of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that less digital period of there were things that were that felt like a an interesting and good use of your time. That I think the context you're in has changed, and now that doesn't necessarily feel like such a good use of time. People are also much more connected at all points. Mm. You know, if a kid wants to just play a game with the mates then you you do it online. You connect your consoles, you connect your computers, yeah. whatever you happen to have, mm. and you've got that. The the opportunity for the solo game that involves a lot of work... Cause mm. let's, let's be honest, some of the more interesting ones, as you said with um, the later books and things like the Alone Against the series, mm. they actually require quite a lot of work. Yeah, not as yeah. not as much work as that game science battle of Britain where you had to track every one of the planes involved <laughs> on a separate sheet. That's a bit, you know, <laughs> there are always extremes in these things, but it's a lot of work compared to saying, "Well, look, you know, let, we want to play a war game, Call of Duty or whatever. You know, we just fire it up, choose your character, and where you go." That said, solo board games are a thing. Well, I was they're, they're actually yeah. a significant part of, of the market now. They are, so, and they've they've grown. But who's playing the them? Are they more adults? Mostly, it. yeah. Yeah, it's mostly mm. adults. And I think it's only if game books, and well, game books, I agree, are never going to be a thing yet. But if they were, it'd largely by 
people our age being nostalgic about it rather than kids being interested in it. I suspect that's where most of the reprint sales are going. Yeah. Uh, and it I... could be. I mean, it's a shame if it is, though. Mm. It is a shame. It but... is a shame, but the world's moved on. Mm. We're relics of a bygone age. Well, thanks for that uh, fabulous note to end on there. <laughs> um... Actually, I, I, I did want to chip in with another thing. Please do. Yeah. Just... Because um, obviously, Fighting Fantasy itself did—they did go take that next step. You know, talking about role-playing games, people moving into role-playing games. You know, the Fighting Fantasy did take that step into let's develop a reasonably full-fledged role-playing game. Yeah, they've would, published yeah. stuff for it relatively recently. There was oh, it's the, still it's still going. I mean, it's a different. It's not the same publisher. Um, convention yeah. as well, don't they? Um, yeah, uh, Graham Botley Arian Games. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's still producing material for it. Yeah, um, you know, I've I have I have played, and if you go if you look on my my blog, there is actually the, a recording of. Oh, um, you know, we 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 recorded a session of us playing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fighting fancy rolling game. Um, possibly the only one of its kind on the internet, but you know, it's there. I'm just wondering, you know, there's been all these other ones have. And obviously, yeah, there's things like the ones that spin offs from D and D and so on. But of the ones that weren't, you know, have others made that tried to make that same kind of leap, or was well, it very much just actually relatively? A mongoose did a lone wolf role play. Was it? There've been at least two. Uh, there was a D twenty one. Oh, that's right. There was a D twenty. Uh, uh, actually, the mongoose one used the system from the game books. Which is rudimentary at best, um, and, and not really very amenable to a role-playing game. Oh, we should say, of course, um, Project Eon mm. has oh, got yes, the Lone Wolf stuff online. If you look up Project Eon, yes, um, yeah. you you can access this uh, quite legally. Well, they're reprinting them now, so I wonder if that's mm. still up. I the the thing I find that. really fascinating about the site uh, is that for quite a few of them, you've got a full uh, choice diagram of the entire book. Oh right. yeah, there's lots of little, um. And, and that's uh, just fascinating to see how, how did they put things together with the strictly limited paragraph count? Yeah. Where are the pinch points that you have to pass through, you know, A or B at some yeah. stage? The, the first thing you learn as a game book author or solo author, um, which of course a lot of people don't realise when they submit something to a publisher in their excitement, is you don't have to jumble the paragraphs up. <laughs> they do that for you. You just write them in order, it's much easier. <laughs> Um, I can't think of many others that made the jump, though, Shim, I must say. No, because mm. you're looking at things like D&D, uh, Call of Cthulhu, Tunnels and Trolls and so on, they were role-playing games, then a solo, th- and then carry on as role-playing games. Yeah. And some have still got so There was a, a Cthulhu solo, another one of those, relatively recently. Yeah, they're still producing a few um, of those. So while they're not exactly churning them out, and you certainly won't find them in a bookshop, it, the solo adventure is still a bit of a thing. The solo game book, I think it's an oddity now. It's almost like a legacy product. Um, I mean, you will still find... There'll be a kid out there who who pick it up and think it's the best thing ever, and that's fabulous. They are still. I mean, And then they're going to tell it to their friends, and their friends are going to say, you're a weirdo. Yeah. (laughs) They are are on the shelves in in bookshelves. You know, we have a fairly small bookshop in town, and Fighting Fantasy is in the kids' section there. I don't know how well it sells, but they have these very distinctive gold covers now. Um, Yeah. But uh, I, don't, I, don't I think know. they help to make role-playing games more respectable. 
Yeah. And it is that thing that, you know what, you get it in a proper shop and you can buy it with a book yeah. token. And yeah. to a lot of parents, that would have made a difference. They might not have allowed oh, yeah. D&D in the house. Mm-hmm. Also, the, I mean, we, we got some of the evangelical nusses going on about it because it was role-playing and therefore evil. But the stories that got out were the ones about uh, the, the parent, uh, mum claims her kid learns to fly after reading this book. Yeah, which so was so obvious, that, yeah, so yeah. obviously rubbish that it that it if it probably just boosted the sales of the books, and and, and I, I wonder if some kid. of that spilled back into role playing as well. You know, it's basically the same thing. It is just as harmless, hmm. well, except for the you know thousands of pounds we've now spent on it. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you can spend a lot. You can, in theory, spend a lot less on role playing. That's you only need one, just one system. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that that's the sort of pernicious word that got around, and that probably had um, Gary Gygax wetting his pants trying to work out. Well, oh my God, if if they know that, then what happens? <laughs> mm-hmm. And the answer is nobody takes it to heart. We just all keep buying stuff for some reason. This new game is going to solve all those problems. Yeah, and because that I, ha- there, I think John, that's going to be the the subject of another water culture because <laughs> chase, chasing the dragon. Why do we keep trying to find the oh. game? Of the world? Oh, we should definitely do one. Yeah. Stick it on the list. Yeah. I think we are. We should wrap uh, up. We are approaching. I'm very low um, on tea, so section four hundred yeah. of this particular. Podcast. Yeah, as we all uh, see, paragraph four hundred there, just out of reach because we forgot to pick up the uh, third skeleton key on the way. Oh. And, uh, do you know, I hardly ever beat a fighting fantasy book. I have very, very few of them. I didn't That'll cheat. I was just crap at them. The <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Um, to anybody who's still listening, um, well, may your stamina never fail. <laughs> <laughs> Although you've failed your luck roll. But uh, thanks very much. We'll do another water culture. Who knows? It may only be another year or two. You never know. Thanks so much, John. Bye, everyone.